Caprice. Muriel married Jeffrey when she was only 18. It was 1909, the time of starched collars and corsets. He was 23 and probably seemed very grown up. They lived in Sherbrooke and then Toronto. Jeffrey left his job at the bank when he was only 33. People who knew him said he was smart but high strung. Jeffrey, Muriel, and their five children moved from Toronto to Sydney on the coast of Vancouver Island. They bought a 25-foot motorboat, the Caprice, for $600. One day, about five years after arriving in BC, Jeffrey took the boat out alone and did not come back. His empty campsite was found. He was not. And the Caprice. The Caprice was found. Muriel, 33, widowed, rented her house out in the summers, and took the children out on the boat, sailing up and down Georgia Strait, writing, traveling, and exploring. Our world then was both wide and narrow, wide in the immensity of sea and mountain, narrow in that the boat was very small, and we lived and camped, explored and swam in a little realm of our own making. In the whole joyful book that she wrote about those summers spent out where her husband had vanished, she never once mentions him. This, this bag, this is a regular Ziploc bag. Basically, the, the day before I was leaving to go to uh, Santiago Compostela, I, uh, I went and bought a whole bunch of... I asked my friend Ziploc Rob if he'd talk to me about a trip he took and, and connections so and loneliness. He came over with a couple of beers in. and some so other stuff. I'll tell you what's in it. So uh, my friend Gabrielle, she done the, the trip 10 years ago. And so I was getting hints from her, and she said, you have to bring clothespins. Bring lots of clothespins. I think that's because women wash their clothes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I had a bag with all these clothespins. And then, uh, you know, yeah, th these, these have never been used. Uh, maybe, maybe three or four of the clothespins have been used. My headlamp. My headlamp, uh, everybody said you have to have a headlamp because you're sleeping in hostels. There's no lights. You get up in the middle of the night, you have to pee, uh, or you just want to read in bed. And the headlight is fantastic. You have seen me wear the headlight to your house. Uh, my kids make fun of me all the time. I read in bed with my headlight every night. I it, It's one of the favorite things I have left over from that trip is my headlight. Yeah. Uh, 
that the there's one used in dirty boot lace because I jettisoned my boots at the end of the trip. I had a very long and complicated relationship with my boots and uh, I threw them away. I left them actually in the, the hostel in Santiago Compostela the last night I was there. I said, I'm not putting those torture devices back on my feet. I brought a copy of, uh, uh, what did I bring to read? I brought uh, a copy of Proust. Uh, <laughs> why did I do that? Why, what did I think I was doing? The story is that, I don't know, I want to say sometime in the last century, the middle of the last century, a priest uh, got his hands on a whole bunch of old paint from uh, some construction project that had happened uh, in Spain. And it was yellow paint. And so he got this paint and he, he started at uh, uh, Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port uh, and... It's in France, and that's the, the start of like the traditional French route, they call it. There's like five or six different routes. And so he, he got this paint, and he walked along, and he put these little arrows, and they're the small yellow arrows. They're quite innocuous. They might be a foot long, the, the biggest of them. Uh, and he marked the route uh, from from all 800 kilometers of it with these little yellow arrows. So every time you, you kind of don't know where to go, uh, you, you look and sometimes there's very ornate uh, uh, carven stone mileposts and sometimes there's, you know, big wooden signs like you're used to seeing with an arrow pointing and showing kilometrages. But quite often the path will go through a city or, or more often than not villages, but through the city in these really innocuous but still really sneakily visible places are these little arrows pointing you down alleys and across roads and around. It, it, it feels like uh, being in on a joke when you're following it because you're in the city and all this stuff is going on. And there's all this, this chaos around or whatever you know city life that y you're walking along and you don't know where to go and then you look around you're like where's that hint where's that hint you look ah there it is it can be just painted on a curb it could be painted on a lamp post could be painted on a fire hydrant on the side of a building so this guy he walked all 800 kilometers and put these little yellow arrows I just finished like this this very big project at work where I had uh, a lot of responsibility and uh, too much responsibility actually. Uh, but it was it was it ultimately worked out well, but it was incredibly intense, like emotionally intense, a time where I had to put a lot of myself into work, you know, getting up early, coming home late. Uh, and it was it was really satisfying uh, in the end that it worked out. But at the time, it was frustrating. And also, I was in like a it was in a you know a leadership role, uh, but like in charge of a project that was worth almost a billion dollars. And I had you know ultimately I was at the very top of a project that employed probably eighteen hundred people. And so I had this this time where I was leading. And, and I was tired of leading. I didn't want to lead anymore. I just wanted to take care of myself, if I can say it. Uh, and, uh, and this thing kind of without, without knowing why 
or that it was going to be what it was uh, that it, it it was exactly what i what i needed at that point the reason i did it is because it was the longest hike i could take with virtually no planning uh, because it's it's been it's been hiked it's been followed by thousands of people for for so long that the infrastructure is all built up i had to do nothing i think loneliness is it's one of the things that, that the pilgrim had to had to contend with you know being far from home a stranger in a strange land uh, uh so i think it's 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 a part of of the deal but where i was at at that point i was also like really craving that aloneness i was uh, you know for for the the period you know of a year and a half before that it was a non-stop parade in my office it was just just people coming in people coming in and everybody who comes in has got a problem and they need you to solve it but I, I just I needed like a, 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 an emotional reset. I needed to get away from that 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 high. I needed to get away from that that living for other people and and always having to to make the call uh, uh, that that you know ultimately hundreds of people uh, uh, were going to follow and and I, ha I was really looking forward to a time where, the, I had to take care of me. And I went at the end of February, the beginning of March. Right? It's the winter season and not many people go because mostly in Galicia, it rains like hell, right? Uh, and so uh, um, most of the auberges are closed. And in some cases, the towns are closed. Like I came to towns and there was nothing. Like it, you, there'd be a municipal fountain that would be running and there would be nothing. You couldn't buy a, a, a roll. I didn't hike with anybody. I'd walk by myself. Having lunch alone didn't bother me. I'd make a, a little thermos of tea in the morning and I'd find somewhere to drink my tea along the way. I would sing to myself every song I knew. Every single song for hours and hours. I would just sing. But then I also met people. And the, the meeting and being with people part of it was was interesting too the people who you pass and you pass they pass you so you get into this really kind of genial friendly uh, rhythm with some people he and a fellow hiker a spaniard named roberto came to a sort of a uh, shangri-la of an auberge and people there was very few people in the village because it's out of season but the people from the village all came so we had supper at this big table with like a hawk of uh, of prosciutto bolted onto the table, and so we had this this really beautiful beautiful uh, evening there, and this this guy Frank showed up. Uh, I was writing in my journal, and he he came. He looked at my maps because he had been lost, or he, he had some kind of a, a an ordeal during that day. So he said, "I'm going to walk with you," and uh, and uh, I said, "Well." Okay, maybe you know if we're going the same way and uh, the next morning i i saw him and he he kind of he had he was looking at me really expectantly and uh, uh so i took my time packing up my things and uh, and got my boots and i walked out and when i walked out he was standing there waiting for me 
I remember he had these he had these uh, snow pants on because uh, it, where we were going, we're getting up at altitude, and some of some people who I guess weren't familiar with with winter were really worried that it was going to be cold. So he had these snow pants. You know when you walk in snow pants, it's a zweep 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 zweep. So he he fell in beside me. He started telling me about his girlfriend and all these things and kind of going and talking and talking. I'm like, okay, okay. And he he was like my shadow. He was stuck to me. If I crossed the road to like get a vantage and take a picture or something, he crossed the road and waited. If sweet, I stopped to have sweet, a drink of water, sweet, he'd stand sweet. beside me. So he followed me and followed me. And at a certain point, I, I said, look, you know, like I'm uh, I'm – I'm not, I'm not here to take care of anyone except myself. Uh, and then he's like, no, I, I, I know. And he kept following and following and following. And then we got to this, this spot. He said, where are we? And we're on the side of a mountain. And it's, it's just wooded slope. And we can see the entire slope. And we're on about a, a 10-foot wide, smooth, flat path in the middle of, uh, of, of this forest. And he said, where are we? I said, well, we're, we're, we're in, on the path, we're in the forest. And he says, no, where are we going? I said, well, we're going to Santiago Compostela, you know. And he said, yeah, but where's the path? <laughs> like, th this is a path. This is like if you asked a kid to draw a, a picture of a path, this is what it would look like. It's absolutely beautiful. And he said, he said, this is the path. He goes, no, but how do you know there's no signs? I said, well, you know, there was one back there. And like, I don't know, do you see any other paths? Uh, and uh, and he went silent. So I kept walking and he was right behind me. Zweep, zweep, zweep. And we went on like that for about another kilometer. And then he, he demanded to know where we are. Where are we? Where are we? I want to know where we are. Uh, and and I, I I said like how did you get here? And uh, he said uh, he said I followed you. I said no. How did you get here? Where did you start? In France. How did you get from France to here? And he didn't answer. He said you know you you got from France to here with your feet. You got from France to here with your head. You know you you're making your decisions on this path. I'm not making the decisions for you. Right, and I'm not here to take care of you. I know where I'm going. Right, so you you have to take care of yourself. I'm not here to take care of anybody. And uh, like I thought about it, well, he 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 stayed there, and I went on my way, uh, and uh, I went down, and, and I felt I felt bad about it uh, afterwards, but at the same time, like. It's funny. I almost I wondered if I, if in my my desire to be completely independent and not take care of anybody, did I, did I draw him to me? Maybe there was somebody else on that that trip who would have been more than happy to to give him that uh, that direction. But I I tend to think no. Like I saw so, so right after I left him. Uh, along came what are their names? So Roberto and Karen uh, from uh, Seattle, and she was you know probably she maybe fifty. She had done almost the entire uh, uh, trip uh, from Saint Jean Pied de Port. So I went. So it was a big switchback. 
So I went down, down, down through this valley and then switched back and came along the other side. And as I was walking along, I started to hear this whistle blowing. Uh, and uh, and uh, I, I, I looked around and I could see across the valley, it was probably like 100 meters straight across this long, deep valley. Uh, I could see the shirt that Roberto uh, w would hike in, recognize this blue shirt uh, on, the, on the path, almost exactly where I left Frank. Roberto, and uh, in Spanish, if you have the same name as somebody, you're, you're, you're a tocayo. It's a word for two people have the same name. So that was our name for each other when we were hiking. So I shouted out to him, Tokayo! And it was far enough, and there was an echo. So you'd say something, and you'd hear, Tokayo! Yo, yo, yo. And then I heard her shout, Wrong path! And uh, uh, so I shouted out back, you know, Path! Good! Because just at the bottom of the switchback was this big water uh, trough. They have them all along. It was the clearest indication that it was exactly the right path. Like, you know, uh, Roberto is blowing his whistle. And so he had kind of, again, limpeted onto them. And then with his own indecision, and if I can say, not knowing where he was, in his own uncertainty, he managed to pass that on to them. And then they were all distressed and they're shouting to me and I'm trying to shout at them across this 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 big valley that they're on the right path. But you, they, they can't they can't hear me very well. Uh, and uh, and so uh, uh, I, I said, OK, they're going to figure it out. So so I keep going. I got to this this great little place to have lunch uh, just on the other side of the mountains. So I pull into this beautiful little town. I go in. There's a restaurant. I have you know a nice sandwich. I have a coffee. As I'm leaving, Karen and uh, Roberto and Frank come into the same place, and Karen uh, walks up to the bar. She <laughs> drops her bag. She sits down at the bar. <laughs> she bangs on the table. <laughs> the bartender says, yeah. She goes, give me a double gin and tonic. It's been a long morning. <laughs> you said you sang the whole time. I wanted to know what you sang. I sang uh, a classic Newfoundland song, uh, The Ryans and the Pitmans. Is that a traveling song? Well, yeah, it's about a guy who is like traveling around all the different bays as a fisherman, and he's been having a go with all the young lassies, and he's trying to figure out which one of them he's going to marry, and in the end, he has to marry the one that he knocked up. My name, it is Robert, but they calls me Bob Pittman. I sail in the inner with Skipper Tom Brown. And I'm bound to have Polly or Biddy or Molly. Just as soon as I'm able to bank the cash down. <laughs> yeah? I am the son of a sea cook, I'm a cook in a trader. I can dance, I can sing, I can reef the main boom. I can handle a jigger, I cut a fine figure. Whenever I get in a ship standing room, we'll rant and we'll roar like true Newfoundlanders. We'll rant and we'll roar on deck and below. 
until we strike bottom inside the two sunkers. We're straight through the channel, the tops low we'll go. We'll rent and we'll roar like true Newfoundlanders. We'll rent and we'll roar and again below until we strike bottom inside the two sunkers. We're straight through the channel, the tops low we'll go. Towards the end of June, or it might have been July, we headed up Jervis Inlet. The inlet cuts through the coast range of British Columbia and extends by winding reaches in a northerly direction for about 60 miles. Originally perhaps a fault in the Earth's crust and later scoured out by a glacier since retreated, it is roughly a mile wide and completely hemmed in on all sides by stupendous mountains rising from almost perpendicular shores to heights of from five to 8,000 feet. All the soundings on the chart are marked 100 fathoms with the no bottom mark, right up to the cliffs. Stunted pines struggle up some of the ravines, but their hold on life is short. Sooner or later, a winter storm or spring avalanche sweeps them out and away. And next summer, there will be a new cascade in their place. For some reason that I have forgotten, probably the hope of trout for supper, we decided to anchor in Vancouver Bay for lunch. Vancouver Bay is about halfway up Jervis and only makes a very temporary anchorage good for a couple of hours on a perfectly calm day. It is a deep bay between very high mountains with a valley and three trout streams. You can drop your hook on a narrow mud bank, but under your stern it falls away to nothing. After lunch, I left the youngsters playing on the beach and taking a fishing line, I worked my way back for perhaps half a mile. The underbrush was heavy and most uncomfortable on bare legs and I had to make wide detours to avoid the devil's club. Then I had to force my way across the stream as my trail had been one of least resistance. It was a perfect trout stream, the water running along swiftly on stony bottom, but with deep pools beside the overhanging banks, cool shade under fallen tree trunks. The sunshine drifted through the alders and flicked on the surface of the running water. Somewhere deeper in the forest, the shy thrushes were calling their single abrupt liquid note. Later, when the sun went down, the single note would change to the ascending triplets. Except for the thrushes, there was not a sound. All was still. I didn't have a rod. You can't cast in that kind of growth. There's no room. I didn't use worms. I used an unripe huckleberry. An unripe huckleberry is about the size and color of a salmon egg, and trout loves. Almost at once, I landed a fair-sized one on the mossy rocks. Another, and then another. I ran a stick through their gills and moved to another pool. But suddenly, I was seized with a kind of panic. I simply had to get back to my children. I shouldn't be able to hear them from where I was if they called. I listened desperately. There was just no sense to this blind urge that I felt, almost frantic. I fought my way back by the most direct route through the salmonberry, salal, and patches of devil's club. 
Coming, coming, I shouted. What was I going to rescue them from? I didn't know, but how desperately urgent it was. was. I finally scrambled through to the beach, blood streaming down my legs, face scratched, hands torn, blood everywhere. Five wondering faces looked at me in horror. The two youngest burst into tears at the sight of this remnant of what had once been their mummy. Are you all right? I gasped with a sudden seething mixture of anger and relief at finding them alive and unhurt. After an interval, the three girls took my fish down to the sea to clean, the two little boys helping me wash off the blood as I sat with my feet in the stream. Devil's Club spikes are very poisonous, and I knew their scratches would give me trouble for days. There's a man along at the other end of the beach, volunteered Peter. He's been watching us. All day, broke in John, and he's all dressed in black. I glanced up. A tall figure was standing there against the trees, up behind the drift logs at the top of the beach, just standing there, arms hanging down, too far away to be seen plainly. Peculiar place for a clergyman to be, I thought inanely, and went back to the more important business of washing off the blood. Then I put on the shoes I had washed. Mommy, cried Elizabeth. I glanced up. The three of them were looking towards the other end of the beach. The man is coming over, said Fran. He's... Mommy! shrieked Jan. It didn't take us two minutes to drag the dinghy into the water and pile in and push off. The man was coming, but he was coming on all fours. The bear ate the fish that the children had dropped. Then, as we pulled up the anchor not 30 feet away, she looked at us crossly, swung her nose in the air to get our scent, and grumbled back along the beach to meet her two cubs. They had suddenly appeared from behind the logs and were coming along the beach in short runs. Between runs, they would sit down, not quite sure what their mother was going to think about it. She didn't think it was a good idea at all. She cuffed them both, and they ran back whimpering to the logs. She followed and then stood up again, tall, black arms hanging loosely and idly watching us leave the bay. Mummy, demanded the children when they were quite sure they were safe. That bad dream you had last night that woke us all up, that you said you couldn't remember, was it about bears? No, at least I don't think so. But even as I spoke, I could remember how very urgent and terrifying something had been in that dream. I hesitated, and then I decided not to tell them about the strange, blind panic I had felt by the stream. I could have smelt the bear downwind, but I knew that the panic and sense of urgency by the stream and the feeling in my dream had been one and the same. The Curve of Time by Muriel Wiley Blanchett, published by Gray's Publishing, 1968. I, Little Furry Grover, am going to show you near and far. Mm -hmm. Okay, here goes. First, this is near. Right here, near. Mm -hmm. near.
This is near. This is near. Near and far. Near and far. This is near. This has been Close Enough, a podcast about closeness and distance, and I am your old furry pal, Jeremy Wexler. Thanks today to Rob Sharon for sharing his story, to Thomas Liffetton, who's Meet Muriel Liffetton and M. Wiley Blanchett at www.liffetton.net, provided many of the details for the life of Muriel Cappy Liffetton, Wiley Blanchett, author of The Curve of Time. Music today from Tiny Folk, their song Lonely that you heard near the top is shared under a Creative Commons attribution and share alike license. The Ryans and the Pittmans was performed by Great Big C with help from me and Rob. I want to hear your stories about closeness and distance. Were you raised by wolves? Did you spend 25 years pushing people into the Tokyo subway? Send me an email at jeremywexlertherapy at gmail.com. That's J-E-R-E-M-Y-W-E-X-L-E-R-T-H-E-R-A-P-Y at gmail.com. The show is hosted at my blog page, Mind My Own Business, on jeremywexlertherapy.com. You can head there for more info about me or the show. This episode of Close Enough was sponsored by People Glue. Is someone in your life telling you they need space? Does that idea terrify you? Get People Glue, the long-lasting bonding solution for keeping those you love close. Available wherever fine adhesives are sold. I'll see you in two weeks. Bye for now.